welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning, I guess still. Yeah, my name is Reed Jolly. I'm from Santa Barbara. I was one of the pastors of Santa Barbara Community Church just for 39 years and um, moved along. But it's great to be here in Carmel. Uh, it's just uh, marvelous. And your, your reputation as a church goes before you. I, I've heard of you for years, and one, of your, one part of your reputation is that you like to enjoy one another, so uh, amen to that. Okay, can we stand for the reading of God's Word? Now, I haven't told you where to turn. We're going to see a slide up here that'll tell you in a minute, but uh, don't turn there right now, but when, we're, when you have a seat, go ahead and find John chapter 2, but let's hear God's Word. Here's what John writes. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. He said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said that to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants that had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called for the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine But you have kept the good wine until now. And that's the end of the little story. But John gives us a characteristic editorial comment afterwards. He says this, the first of his signs Jesus did while at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Well, I I, uh, did a little faux pas this morning. I didn't realize this is kind of the heart and center of wine country, so what an appropriate text here. Uh, There's a book that is very interesting. It's written by a man named Leon Cass. Leon Cass became a medical doctor, then he took a PhD in biochemistry, and then he went to teach philosophy and literature at the University of Chicago. So go figure, right? But he wrote a very interesting book. It's called uh, The Hungry Soul, Eating and the Perfecting of Our Nature. In that book, he says this, our attempt to match foods to the special features of the human soul will remain incomplete unless we mention the grape, the fruit of the vine and its spiritual essence, wine. Wine, at least as much as bread, is peculiar to the human species. Only human beings ferment the grape. 
And as with bread, the discovery of fermentation and its psychic properties is a great mystery. In moderate amounts, it inspires and encourages, yielding more than nourishment. Wine provides partial relief from the hardships of life and the need to sweat for our bread. Wine gladdens the heart. Wine loosens the tongue and enlivens the soul. Under its influence, we forget our troubles, lose our inhibitions, and speak our minds. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll drink to that. No. <laughs> Now, in the Bible, we might say wine gets mixed reviews. <laughs> On the one hand, and I met some people from the first service, wine is very dangerous. Uh, my wife is a drug and alcohol counselor, and she's counseled with many who have destroyed their lives uh, with the fruit of the vine. I had a friend just this week check into a treatment center because of his problem with alcohol. So it's a very dangerous drug, and the scriptures warn us of this. Proverbs 21, verse 7, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Chapter 23, verse 31, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. So wine is very dangerous, but on the other hand, wine is a symbol of the blessing of God. So Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And when Messiah comes in the Old Testament, he's going to come with a lot of wine. So we come to John chapter 2, I hope you're there, and we come to a, a story that, that shows a, a wedding that has a shortage of wine. Now let me tell you how this fits into John's gospel. Chapter 1, John uses a lot of words that are very weighty and symbolic. You know, that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among, among us and, and this, these images of light and darkness and the light has dwelt among us and behold the Lamb of God, words that have deeper meaning than themselves. But from chapter 2 onward, John is going to show us the deeds of Jesus and point to the deeper meaning of those deeds. And the whole thing is an emphasis on the new, new wine, a new temple, a new birth for Nicodemus, new water for those who will drink, new worship, new legs for a man that's been sitting by a pool 38 years, new bread for 5,000 people, new eyes for a man born blind, new life for Lazarus. Well, this passage contains the first of seven miracles in John's gospel. Go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you'll see miracle after miracle after miracle. About one half of Mark's gospel contains, is, a, is all about miracles. And they're called that. They're either called works of power, dunamis, or miracles themselves. But in John's gospel, we only get seven. And each of them points to a deeper reality. So I've used a lot of words already. I'm going to use a few more. But, but I want you to get one thing this morning, and it is this. Uh, the passage calls us, it calls you, it calls me to drink the wine that is Jesus. What grade are you guys in? Huh? Tenth grade. So I'm telling you, drink wine. <laughs> this passage says, drink the wine that is Jesus. 
All right. We need to drink it if we're in 10th grade. We need to drink the wine if we're 150. Okay? We're going to ask five questions to this text that will get us there. What about the wedding? What about mom? What about Jesus? What about the wine? And what about the glory? So first, what about the wedding? Why would John begin here? There's no record of this miracle in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, yet John tells us it's the first sign, the first miracle. What's going on here? <laughs> I, this is just my little feeble brain working, but at one level, Jesus might be having a little bit of fun with Nathaniel. You remember when the, the, we meet the disciples meeting Jesus in John chapter 1, and Nathaniel uh, says, well, uh, Philip says, we've met the Messiah. Well, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. You remember, you remember what he said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Nazareth is the, uh, unquestionably the first century equivalent to Bakersfield. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. Anybody from Bakersfield? I'm so sorry, but uh, nobody ever has me come back. So. <laughs> but, but Nathaniel is from Cana. Now, Cana is like Wasco or Dildale or Green Acres that are little suburbs around Bakersfield. I mean, nobody, archaeologists don't even know where Cana of Galilee is. It's kind of nothingsville. And Nathaniel is from Cana, as if Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, you want to know? Something good can come out even of Cana if I am there. But here's a wedding, and, and from our perspective, we might say, oh, weddings, you know, i got to go to a wedding on Saturday, and then I can get back to whatever I'm doing. Uh, <coughs> weddings are a big deal in the ancient Near East, and they are a big thing in the Old Testament. The prophets uh, began to characterize Israel as the unfaithful bride of God. Hosea is the apex of this, but Jeremiah does it, Isaiah does it, Ezekiel does it, and other prophets there, Israel is the unfaithful bride of God, and God is so loving, merciful, and gracious that, that one day God's going to remarry his, his bride, and we see that fulfilled in the New Testament. So a wedding is a big thing, and a wedding feast is a big thing. So in Isaiah 25, God will say, on this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. And what is that? He will destroy death forever. He'll wipe away the tear from every eye. So here we are at a wedding. Well, what about mom? Question number two. There is a fascinating interchange here between Jesus and his mother. And the way John writes it, we can't help but see it. Uh, she's never named. Mary never gets her name in this passage. She's called two times the mother of Jesus and one time his mother. What's going on here? John wants all the focus to be on Jesus. Now, make no mistake, Mary is in a position of responsibility. We might say that the chief of the feast is the, the wedding coordinator, and Mary is the caterer. The wine runs out, and she's the one that's responsible here. In the first century, 
if we go to a wedding on Saturday afternoon, it's what, two, three hours long, and you have a nice meal, somebody that you haven't even met buys you a great dinner, and, and you enjoy yourself, and everybody dances to the same songs that they danced to at the last wedding. The loop, the wedding loop, the DJ calls it. But in the ancient Near East, in Israel, a wedding would last from three days to a week. And it was expected that there would be an abundance of wine. There's even records in the ancient Near East of one family suing another family because the wine uh, ran out at the wedding. Can you imagine that? I'm going to sue you. <laughs> the groom's reputation was at stake. This is a, a terrible travesty that the wine has run out. And so she comes to Jesus and says kind of cryptically, they have no wine. Is she asking him to fix the problem? It doesn't say. By the way, I, I wonder, parenthetically, if this is just a, a great little insight on how we might pray, just to tell the Lord what's going on. Lord, my, my son, he's going off the rails. God, have you noticed my, my mother has cancer? Mary just comes and she states the problem. We're not sure if she wants him to fix the problem. How could she? He's not even done a miracle yet. But on the other hand, she was a virgin when she bore him. Ah, this guy's kind of special. But the response of Jesus startles us. What about the wedding? What about mom? What about Jesus? Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding, and they go. <laughs> they are not reclusive. They go to the party, and sometimes Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he likes people. He likes a party. But at this wedding, he's going to do two things. He's going to distance himself from his mother, and the second thing he's going to do is he's going to, he, he's going to show that he's a bit bothered by, by his mother's request. Look at verse 4. What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, that is not the warmest interaction with one's mom. Now, if you have the New Living Translation, have you ever read that? It says, dear woman. But the word dear is not in the Greek text. He just says woman. That's thoroughly courteous, but it's not warm. It's not endearing. It's not familial. It's, it's very formal. It's impersonal. Literally, if you play around with the Greek text, it says something like this. What do you and I have to do with one another? However we translate it, it seems that Jesus is distancing himself from his mother. In fact, a couple of times in Mark's gospel, we run across this phrase, and it's uh, referred to when the demons want to distance themselves from Jesus. Mark chapter 1 Jesus is in the synagogue, and he comes in, and a man who has many demons, one of them says to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you have to do with us? In other words, stay away. But here, Jesus seems to be saying to his mother, it's time for us to take leave of one another. What's going on here? What do you think? Well, think about this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus refers to the person that we would call the first person of the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The first person is the Father. Jesus refers to the Father in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All combined, add them all up, 46 times. In John's Gospel, 100 times. 
In John's gospel, it is all about the Father. Jesus has come to do the will of the Father, to speak the words of the Father, to glorify the Father. And at one point he'll say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's all about the Father. So he distances himself from his mother. But he seems a bit perturbed, doesn't he? My hour has not yet come. Why is he perturbed? Let's think about it. What do you do at a wedding? Have you been to a wedding lately? I, I, I'm a pastor. I've, I've had the privilege of presiding at literally hundreds of weddings. And they're always joyous affairs. Almost always. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what happens. There's more fall de raw on you know, Friday afternoon. And then Saturday the wedding comes. And there's little pieces of tape there. And you stand here. And you stand here. And there's flowers. And you know, so much stress and tension. And finally, there comes the bride and the groomsmen are up here. And if it's a young wedding, they look kind of like teenagers and, and, or, or whatnot. But, but here she comes and about half the women in the room cry. What, is, what are they crying about? What do the men in the room do? Well, if we are married, we are thinking about our own wedding. And I invite people. I say, you're going to hear vows that you one day made. You can renew your vows as you hear them yet again. If we're not yet married, if we're in 10th grade, we might think about the wedding that will one day be. And I can set you up with somebody if you're interested in that. We can, <laughs> we can work on that. Or maybe we're later in life and we, we're, we've kind of given up on that prospect. And if we know Christ, we may be thinking about the wedding supper of the bride of Christ and the Lamb. But at weddings, we think about weddings. Now, now could it be that Jesus here at this wedding in Cana of Galilee is thinking about his own wedding. So a young bachelor or a young bachelorette gets married and we call that tying the knot. Weddings or marriage is a self-limiting institution and then you get a greater freedom. Could it be that Jesus is thinking about what he will have to give up in order to marry whom? Well, in John 3, John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom. Who is the bride? The bride is the church, the people of God. And if Jesus is thinking about his own wedding, what he's thinking is, this will not cost me my freedom. It will cost me my blood. There will be no wedding without blood. So he says to his mom, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you skip the Super Bowl today, you will be blessed. No. <laughs> if you skip the Super Bowl today and read all through John, you'll read several times about this hour of Jesus. And you cannot help read John without saying, what hour? And John doesn't tell you. Jesus doesn't tell you. Finally, you get to John chapter 12, and he says, some Greeks come to him and ask him a question. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you say, wow, finally I get to find out about the hour. Hour and glory go together, John chapter 12. And then what does Jesus say? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour of Jesus, the hour of the glory of Jesus. 
refers to his death on a cross where his wedding will cost him his life, his blood. And a couple of verses later, he says, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, Father, glorify your name. What Jesus says to his mother is, I'm not ready yet to die. Well, question number four, what about the wine? The contrast and the quantity are central to the story. The contrast is with the stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification and the wine that provides the joy of the party. And there's a crisis. There's no more wine. But there's water. There's lots of water. Plenty of water. And Jesus tells the servants, fill the pots, and they fill them how much? To the brim. (laughs) Now, watch this. This water in the water pots, there'd be six of them, and you come in and you wash your hands. That was not about germs. It wasn't about your mom saying, wash your hands before you go to dinner. You know, it was, no. It It was a ceremonial cleansing. And they would wash their hands perhaps several times a day at this three or four or five day wedding feast. And all that that cleansing could do would be to get the worshiper to some state of ritual purity. It provided no joy. It got the, the, the worshipers, in a sense, up to blessed zero. But there was no joy in it whatsoever. And Jesus comes along and provides wine. By the way, have you ever known someone like this? They do the religious thing, they have their devotions, they tithe, they go to church, and they, they, do, they kind of check all the boxes, but as you look at his or her life, there is no joy. Have you known someone like that? I sure have. Ellen Glasgow was a novelist, and she also wrote an autobiography, and she talked about her dad, who was a religious man, and she said this, just listen to this, she said, he, her dad, was entirely unselfish. And in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. (laughs) Wow. Joyless. The water goes onto the hands, and you feel ceremonially clean. The wine goes to your head and then to your heart. And Jesus invites you to drink. The surprise of the story after rebuffing his mother is that Jesus goes ahead and makes wine, and he makes a lot of it. He makes enough that it'll probably have to be thrown out before it goes bad. The master of the feast drinks it, and he scratches his head, and he says, wow, that's really good. Most people serve the good wine, but you've... And then after that, you know, they go move over to Charles Shaw, but, but you've kept the good stuff for now. John wants us to know that Messiah is here. Can I ask you, have you drunk this wine? Are you drinking this wine? I know this community has been rocked by a lot, a lot of death in the last few weeks, and I'm sorry. My church community in Santa Barbara, we had a death that rocked us. We had a a 41-year-old husband, father of two, He was riding his bike one day, and he felt a little pain in his shoulder, and he recognized that he'd felt that for a few weeks, and he thought, well, I better go get it checked out. He went to the doctor, had an x-ray. Five weeks later, he was dead. 
there was a tumor in there that just simply grew and took his life. His wife was blogging about his latter days, and when he died, she said this. Dear friends, as you now know, my sweet Jerry passed away this afternoon around 425 Pacific Standard Time. He fought strong until the end, and I never left his side. She says, I think I kissed every inch of his body. I want each of you to know that I believed, even until his very last breath, that God was in total control. She says, we serve such a gracious and loving God, and Jerry has met him face to face. Imagine. Church, what gives someone the strength to be able to say that at, at this moment of great loss? And I've known Candy, and she's a friend, and I've watched her faithfulness through the years as she's raised her children alone. What gives someone that kind of faithfulness? What gives you and gives me the motive and the drive and the power to press on when pain and suffering knock at our door? Well, you have to drink some wine. You have to drink a lot of it. You have to drink the right kind of wine. You've got to drink the wine of the one who will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, the one who will swallow up death forever. What about the wedding? What about mom? What about Jesus? What about the wine? What about the glory? John tells us that this sign was a manifestation of the glory of Christ. It looked forward to the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And we might be tempted to stop right here and say, well, isn't that great? But do you see how John concludes the first of the signs? Look at the last part of that verse, verse 11. What's it say? And his disciples joined the party and they drank a whole lot of this great wine and had a good time. That's not what it says. Six words that if you get these words in your life, they will change you forever. And his disciples, what? Believed in him. That's the key word of the gospel. When all is said and done, John writes, Jesus did many other signs among them, but these things are written that you might believe that he is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Well, we're just about done. But one problem we face, you and I, I face this all the time, is we want to drink the wine that Jesus makes and not the wine that Jesus is. We want to drink the, drink the wine that Jesus makes. You know, something go, goes wrong. We, we, we fail a class at school. We say, Lord, you've got to help me out. And he does. And you say, thank you, Jesus. Or a loved one is sick and, and has cancer. And you say, Lord, heal that person. And he does. And you say, thank you, Jesus. Or you've lost your job. And you say, Lord, I, I need a job. And he gives you a better one. And you say, thank you, Jesus. And you think that that's the wine that you're supposed to drink. And if he gives you that kind of wine, drink it. And enjoy it and, and be blessed by it. 
He's the giver of every good gift, but that is not the wine that John is talking about here. At the end of the day, he points us not to the disciples drinking this great Merlot that Jesus has just made. He points us to belief in Jesus. And we should be satisfied with no less. The call here is to drink the wine that Jesus is, not the wine that Jesus makes. Have you drunk and are you drinking this wine? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wedding feast and we thank you for what it portends that you would come and die on the cross in our place. That your blood would be shed to procure our salvation. And Lord, I want to pray for myself and for everyone in this room that we would not be satisfied with any other drink than this that we would drink deeply of you and be satisfied by you. There are some in this room who have never bowed their knee to you and men and women who are living life on our own defiantly. Lord, would you humble us and bring us to a saving knowledge of Christ? And Lord, for others in this room, may we be reminded And may we be thirsty to drink of you and you alone. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.